expectation of his righteousness came uh, several years before even circumcision. And so Paul's just using Abraham, the father of the faithful, to make this you know, point over and over again. It's not by works. It's not by the law. It's by a gift from God in response to a responsive faith on our part to just believing him. Now, last time afterwards, a few people talked to me about wanting clarification as to exactly how did salvation work in the Old Testament? Because Abraham believed God, but how much did he really believe, and in what way did that tie him in with Jesus? Well, first, let's talk about how we come into a relationship with God. It's as we believe in what he did for us. And so, in a sense, we are saved by looking back and seeing what the Bible teaches happened a couple thousand years ago, that Jesus Christ took our sins on himself, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and therefore our salvation is tied in with what he did. So we become saved today by believing in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now in the Old Testament, how did they get saved? First of all, until Jesus died, they couldn't go to heaven. They went to kind of a holding tank that Jesus called Abraham's bosom where the godly people from the Old Testament would go there waiting until Jesus would die and then he would go down to Abraham's bosom and take all those people and lead them up into heaven. But what did it take to get you saved if salvation was at that point going to Abraham's bosom waiting for Jesus to come? Well, they were looking forward to what we look back on. And so they were saved by putting their faith in Jesus. Even though they didn't know his name, and even though they knew very little, in some cases, about what he would do, yet their response in faith was based on what had been revealed to them. Now, in some cases, it was a lot more than you might think. For instance, in the case of Abraham, we, we saw there in Genesis chapter 14, when he came to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, that mysterious character, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and a priest after a special order way before the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood. So Melchizedek and Many people believe, and I lean this way, that Melchizedek was actually Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, what we call a theophany or a Christophany. Now, he was either a guy who had the weirdest priesthood ever, out of nowhere, a guy without parents, <laughs> you know, um, no heritage that we know of, and, and he just popped up as a picture of who Jesus would once be, or he was Jesus himself. And, um, you know, I, I used to, probably when we went through Genesis, I probably leaned toward him as a type of Christ. Now, so let's take that possibility first. Well, here Abraham, Abraham comes and, and pays tithes to Melchizedek, this character, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He showed obeisance to him, and 
responded to him. Now, what kind of, how did he know and how much did Abraham know at this point? Could he have even, could Melchizedek have even explained to him, I am the one who will come one day and, and die for the sins of the world? It's possible. I do, I am kind of, recently David Hawking did like a 15-week series on Melchizedek, and he pretty much convinced me. I, I thought his arguments were very impressive, and, and so I kind of went from, eh, probably type of Christ to, yeah, it probably is Jesus. Especially, I mean, and one thing that really stands out in relationship to Abraham, remember Jesus talking about Abraham said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. <laughs> How did he see it? Somehow with the eyes of faith. Again, Jesus said about Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus identifying himself, but at the same time suggesting that Abraham knew who he was. Now, it may have been in that contact with Melchizedek, but whatever Abraham knew, if it was simply that God told him, you've got a sin problem, and sacrifice is going to have to happen, so bring an animal and offer a sacrifice to me. If that was all he knew, what did that sacrifice represent? represented Jesus Christ. And for anyone in the Old Testament who would offer a sacrifice from their heart, they were really offering a sacrifice that was a picture of Jesus Christ. Even those who would celebrate the Sabbath from the heart were connecting with Jesus who it says he is our Sabbath. And that's why over in Colossians chapter 2, it talks about Sabbath days and feast days as being a foreshadowing of Jesus, but they are the type and he is the substance. So in the Old Testament, if you believed in that which God revealed about his son, which was, again, sometimes not much, but sometimes it was pretty stunning in how much he revealed. As you look at some of the prophecies later in the prophets, boy, some pretty graphic pictures concerning Jesus even and his death. And so, um, however much had been revealed to you, by putting your faith in that from the heart, righteousness was declared based on <coughs> your faith. It got confusing to the people because, and still is, because faith is a personal belief and commitment. But faith results in certain responses. And so in the case of Abraham, as we saw in chapter 4, he had faith and God declared him to be righteous. But following up on that, he ended up when he was commanded to sacrifice his son. He did it. When he was commanded to get circumcised, he did it. And so it was easy for people to go, oh, I get it. God makes you righteous when you get circumcised. God makes you righteous when you do what he tells you to do. And that's the ultimate confusion that people have to this day. And that's why there are people who believe, I mean, a lot of people believe that if you do good things to others, if you show God's love to others, if you um, 
you know, go to church regularly, if you share your faith, that therefore that makes you right with God. But being right with God might cause you to want to do those things and really enable you to do them. But it's not doing the things that affects your status before God at all. Even, you know, when Jesus said when he was going to have in the judgment, he would divide the sheep and the goats. And he said, okay, everybody over on my right hand are the people who fed, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the prisoners, and so on. Everybody on the left, the people who didn't do it, and they go, what? We, we never, you know, and he said, no. Well, he said, you've done it to me if you did it to the least of these. Well, you don't get saved by feeding the hungry or clothing the naked or by visiting those who are in prison. That doesn't save you. There are a whole lot of people who do that, and they don't have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who are good people, but they haven't received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, if you receive him as your Savior, it creates such a desire and ability and the strength to be able to be that kind of a person that you can tell, you know, Jesus could separate and say, you know, I know that faith has an effect on your life, so I can look at the effect in your life and sort of sort you out. James does a lot of that too and says, faith without works is dead. But Paul wants to make it really clear, it's not the works. Works don't have anything to do with it. It is a gift from God. If it had to do with works, you'd brag about it. If it had to do with what you do, you're all sunk because you'll all fail to obey him perfectly. So God says, just receive my gift of salvation. And it's just receiving that gift that makes all the difference in your life. And that's true for an Old Testament saint who only knew certain things about the promise of the Messiah, and yet they believed in those things. I believe that Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and you know, when they sinned and the curse was there, and, and, and then, uh, you know, as God was pronouncing the curse, and he talked to Eve and he said, Your seed, and they didn't know seed, I mean, they hadn't had any kids yet, but said, You're going to have a kid that comes from you at some point which is interesting, you'd usually consider it the man's seed, but in this case, it was the woman's seed because Jesus was, was biologically a descendant from a woman, but not from a man. It was God. But he said, your seed is going to crush the head of Satan. Well, that in Genesis 3, 15, 16 there is what they call proto-evangelism, the first time the gospel was presented. And if Adam and Eve believed that, that's all they knew about Jesus. But if that was something in which they put their faith, then salvation. And that salvation, again, by grace, it was given to them. So does that make sense? Cool. Let's go to chapter 5. Now, a lot of people take chapter 5 and they see chapter 5 as being somewhat about um, righteousness that we would call sanctification. That is, the results of being declared righteous that leads us to be able to have the ability to do some good things. But 
personally, I don't, I think that's premature. That's going to come in later in Romans in, in a huge way. But in chapter 5, he's following up on salvation being just a gift from God as a response to faith. And he's talking about righteousness here, but he's still talking about that righteousness that we receive from him, that righteousness that's declared by God to be ours, that's imputed to us. And he still isn't yet entering into, I believe, he still isn't entering into what we might call practical righteousness where our life really starts to change. Hang with us because as we go through Romans, when we get into chapter 6 and 7 and ultimately in chapter 8 and then later in chapter 12, we're, we're going to see how this actually works and how the results of receiving a gift actually does transform our lives in a way that law, rules, obedience never could. Just a response. But here, I don't think he totally has that in mind. He says, therefore, on the basis of what he has already said, salvation is by grace through faith. You don't earn it. You don't have to work for it. It's given to you. Therefore, having been justified, which means to be declared righteous, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and this isn't talking about the experiential peace that we have, the peace of God. We get that also. But here he's saying that at one point we were at enmity with God. We made ourselves enemies of God by living in sin, by choosing to go our own way. And as a result, there's a wall between every man, woman, and child who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ and God. That wall is one we build when we disobey him. And so now, though, he is saying, because of the gift that we have received, we have peace with God. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, there isn't any reason in the world why anything should stand between you and God. Your peace has been made with God. You will be as close to God as you want to be, as you choose to be. Any wall that you put up is going to be of your making. God is never going to look at you and say, because you're not good enough, I don't want anything to do with you. Because you have done something wrong, get out of my face, get out of my presence. No, we have peace with God. Our connection with God has already been paid for. It's free. It's a gift. It simply comes because we have faith in Him. And so this is kind of the point of what he's saying. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's a mouthful. Okay, we have peace with God. We also have access by faith. In the same way that, that we receive his offer of salvation by faith, we also exercise that same faith and we can get to him. 
We can be with Him. We can be in touch with Him. We can hear from Him. We can communicate with Him. We can, as Paul says, come boldly before the throne of grace. And so because there isn't anything that stands between us and God any longer, now that same faith when put into action allows us access into the presence of God. And it's a shame that we don't understand what a big deal that is sometimes, that we can walk up to God anytime we want, that we at any moment can enter into that conscious, aware presence of the very God who, who made us and who loves us. He's with us, but by faith, we enter into his presence. Sometimes when we come to church, we think, oh, we're coming into God's house. Um, and I understand that, and that's okay metaphorically. But, and then sometimes when we worship God or when we pray, we say, Lord, we're entering into your presence. Well, there's something to be said for that. I'm not totally against that necessarily, but the truth is, Anytime we exercise our faith, we find out His presence is there. And He was with you all day today. A lot of the time you weren't aware that He was there, but you spent today in His presence if you have the faith to understand that and to see it. I had a friend, a professor at Biola, who pastored a really large church over in Lakewood, and First Baptist Church of Lakewood, and he one time was walking up to church between services, and <coughs> there was a guy smoking outside, finishing his cigarette before he was going to go into church. And uh, Dr. Boyer came up to him, and he goes, hey, why, why don't you just come on into church? He goes, well, uh, you know, I'm finishing my cigarette. And he goes, ah, just come on, just bring your cigarette in, smoke in church. And the guy goes, oh, I could never do that. And he said, well, why? He said, that's the Lord's house. And he said, no, it's not. And he pointed at him at his chest, and he said, that's the Lord's house. And that's, I don't know if the guy quit smoking. I sure would have. <laughs> but how we need to be reminded of that, Jesus died so that this could be true. And if what we do is come into his presence three times a day to thank him for the food, you know, or to ask generic prayers about, Lord, bless everybody everywhere. When Jesus died so that we can be in the very presence of God, you know what a big deal it is when people get to, maybe their team wins a championship or something, and they get to go to the White House and meet the president, or they're in England and they get to get an audience before the queen, or they are in Italy, and they get to go kiss the ring of the Pope. or what, And it's like, oh, I'm nervous. This is a big deal. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us and because we have peace with God, we have an open ticket into his presence. And we can use that anytime we want by faith. The same faith that got us saved is the same faith that brings us into his presence in a special way, an awareness of his presence. Now, people used to lane trips on 
people I know when I was a kid, you know, they would say, oh, would you want Jesus to come back when you were at the movies or, you know, if, when you were having a drink or something like that? You know what? If you had a drink this week, he was with you. If you, were, if you saw a movie you shouldn't have seen or you did something else, if you're having an affair, or I- everything that you're doing, he is with you. What's really cool is he's not surprised by what you do. He's not repulsed by it. He is saddened when we do things that hurt us because we're his children and he loves us and he doesn't want us to do those things that are bad. But he was with you the whole time. He was always there. But for us, is that something that threatens us or is that something that we welcome and go, God, right now I'm just going to lay on the sofa and watch a basketball game. Want to watch with me? And he goes, yeah, I would. I'd like to do that with you. And as you're watching the game, just go, God, did you see that shot? That's amazing. (laughs) How in the world did somebody have that ability? You gave it to them, Lord, and I I praise you for it. To, To say, hey, you know, I know I shouldn't be eating a lot of ice cream, but I really want a bowl of ice cream right now. God, you want to share it with me? (laughs) And he goes, you can eat and I'll watch. (laughs) And as you enjoy that, you can be enjoying him. He's not, he, he loves to see his children happy. And he wants to be with us through everything that we do in our lives. He's not just somebody that when we come into his presence, it's like, Organ music has to play. It's all spooky, and you be on your best behavior. And you, no, he goes. I want to be with you all the time. I just want to hang out with you, and that ability to be with him through everything is a huge part of our salvation. Jesus died so that we could come boldly before the throne of grace and to talk with him and to fellowship with him and to really worship him in in spirit and in truth. And Paul was just blown away by that. And so he says, by faith, we have peace with God. And the cool thing about that is, by faith, we have access into this grace in which we stand. I'm not standing on what I am doing. And, And that's why I don't get overly consumed with everything that I do, whether it's right or wrong. I don't get super evaluative in terms of what are my true motives here. If I did, I would just become discouraged because every day I do some good things for people, but sometimes I don't really want to, so it doesn't really count. (laughs) Other times I say something nice to someone, but I'm thinking what I really ought to say to you. And so if I get too absorbed with me, I'll just get depressed. The truth is, if I back up a little bit, I I can also tell you, God has done some cool things in my life. He has helped me as by His grace. It's nothing that I've done, but I can see areas where I've grown. I can see where God has done good things through me and 
and in me and all, and, and I appreciate that from a distance, but if I start evaluating it too much, just like if I start evaluating other people in my life, I'll pick them apart. But I stand in His grace, and that's why I can come boldly into His presence, because it's His grace that I, that I need to live every moment of my life. I would be hopelessly depressed if it wasn't for His grace. And sometimes people are hopelessly depressed because they don't, aren't aware of His grace. Stand in His grace. Believe that it's there. Believe that there is nothing between you and God. Don't be like one, you know, there are some people who are always asking for reassurance. People, sometimes I have people come up to me and just go, is something wrong? And I go, no. No, you seem like you're bugged at me. Or, you know, I've noticed lately, you know, when you walk by, you don't, no, no, really, I'm, if there was something wrong, I'd tell you, everything's fine. I, you know, I, I'm sure my mind was somewhere else, or are you sure? And then I have to go, geez, you know, I, I, now I'm going to have to go out of my way to be really exaggerated towards this person to stroke them. Well, don't be like that. Don't, don't be the type of person that's always looking for, you know, God, do you love me now? How about now? Okay, if I did that, would you love me then? Well, how about stand in His grace? Receive it by faith. I'm telling you, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have a thing to worry about in the world. You don't have anything to worry about. Any burden that you are carrying is only a burden that you are insisting on carrying because he said, cast it on me because I care for you. And if you want to carry the burden, he will let you. I, I sometimes will lay awake nights trying to carry burdens. And then he reminds me, stand in my grace. This isn't your problem. Stop worrying about it. Don't be so insecure. It just makes us miserable when we get out of his grace. We should feel his pleasure all the time. I, even though I think it's a real legalistic movie, I, I, I always got a kick out of that um, Chariots of Fire movie where the Olympic runners, and, I, and I, I think it's silly to not run on the s Sabbath, on Sunday especially, um, but whatever, that's what he did. But what the Olympic runner, uh, Eric Liddell, made the statement that, you know, God made me, and he made me fast. And we, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Well, that's cool. And I'm... When I run, I don't feel his pleasure. I'll tell you that right now. I, I don't if I ran every day, I, do, I have never felt God's pleasure from running. When I eat, I feel his pleasure. But, <laughs> but the truth is, you don't have to run to feel his pleasure. You don't have to do anything to feel his pleasure. He is pleased with you because of his grace. Stand in that grace. Put your faith in the reality of that promise and enjoy his pleasure. Enjoy the fact that there is nothing that stands between you and God. That happens by faith, and 
That's what Paul wants to say. And then he says, finally, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The Christian life, when we really understand faith and grace, there's this incredible hope. We're hoping in the glory of God. We're, we're believing that God is going to bring good out of everything. That ultimately, if we will just relate to him, if we will just believe in him and trust him and receive his grace, then ultimately what we are saying is God is going to work this out. God is going to be glorified in my life. He says he will, and I guess he's going to, and I'm going to trust him for that, and I'm going to believe him for that. To put your hope in anything else, you're going to be disappointed. You know, for many of us, dreamed at one point about Ed McMahon showing up at our door with a huge check. Ed McMahon's like getting kicked out of his own house now, you know. That hasn't, hasn't got him anything. But like the first song that we sang tonight, my hope is in you. When our hope is in him, we're hoping in his glory. We're believing that he is able to bring his glory out of everything. Later in the chapter, if we get to it, he's going to say that where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. That's why I have hope. Because if he can take my sin and turn it into his glory, turn it into redemption, well, if all he needs from me is a sinner, I'm in. I've got it. I can generate. I can, I can think of more ways to sin. You know? And that gives me hope in his glory. And what does that do ultimately? I can rejoice because I'm not worried about the future. I'm not afraid of failing God. I came to him because I failed him. And he says, that's okay. I love you. I'm putting my grace on you. And so let go of any notion that you can earn it. And ultimately, there's this joy that comes in of knowing that God is going to be glorified, knowing that grace really does work, that this is the only thing that's ultimately going to change our lives, is understanding His grace. And there are people who <coughs> accept Jesus Christ and live really good lives, and yet they never really understand the fact that the pressure is off, and so they live lives of pressure, and... They're forgiven. They just don't realize it. They're okay with God. They're in His presence, but they just don't feel like it because they just can't believe that it's that great of a deal. And as a result, the joy of the Lord that's our strength, well, it's just not a part of their lives. And therefore, other people aren't interested in hearing about their faith, so usually they become really argumentative about it. They, they want to go pick fights with people. And often they're the kind of people who, who have a passion to go out and share the gospel with strangers. And the reason they're so into sharing the gospel with strangers is because people who know them don't want anything to do with the gospel. It's great to go share the gospel with strangers, but if we don't have a gospel that communicates and connects with joy, 
to the people who know us, to the people who we are in normal relationship with, you got to wonder. And it's a question that we should ask ourselves often. Are we having the joy? Is the joy of the Lord really there in our lives? That rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Um, Because that is like an idiot light on our dashboard to let us know if we're walking by faith, if we are standing in grace. If you've had a lousy day today, it wasn't because you were standing in grace. It was because somehow you got the wrong idea about how much of this is your responsibility. And so Paul ties this up and as a key to rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, <laughs> in this chapter he keeps, he keeps saying things like, but there's more, not only that, much more. David Gregory, a friend of ours who's a missionary in the Ukraine, when he writes his letters, it's always, and not only that, and, you know, and then, it's, you know, but Paul's kind of doing that, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Oh. Knowing that tribulation <laughs> produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul said it's not just rejoicing in the normal events of our lives, But even when we're going through a hard time, even tribulations don't bring us down, but we're able to rejoice in in our tribulations. And why? Because we know God loves us. We know that he wouldn't allow us to go through a hard time unless he was going to bring glory from it, unless it was going to be totally worth it. And so in the middle of a tribulation, we are able to rejoice, and here's Paul's thought process. Tribulation produces perseverance. <laughs> About the only way that you can learn how to be, how to be you know, uh, patient and how to hang in there is by going through difficult times. It's why one of the things that you do if you want to keep your body in shape is do something called resistance training. There's something in your body that develops your capacities as a result of you inflicting some resistance on yourself. And so people who walk sometimes put, you know, ankle weights on. Nowadays, they don't do that as much because it's really bad for your knees and everything. But the idea was, I'll give myself some resistance. Now, you can get the same results when you walk just by eating a couple of burgers before you go. But... (laughs) No, but, but Paul understood, when I go through a hard time, it makes me stronger. It teaches me how to hang in there. Is there a value to hanging in there? You might go, well, I don't get why I need to persevere. Why can't God just do what I want him to do right now? It's a good question. But here's the thing. And, and really... In a perfect world, that would be the case. But this is a world in which everyone has the power of choice. 
God understood that for us to be able to choose is central to us to be able to have any value in our lives at all. And so right from the very beginning, he gave Adam and Eve a choice. They made the wrong choice. But God would rather see that than to have robots, than to have people who are without choice. So why do I need perseverance? Because God gives you the choice to be a jerk to me. And if I'm going to have relationships with other people, they may not be where I am, or I may not be where they are. And so I need to be patient. I need to learn to be patient with my wife. She needs to learn to be patient with me. Other people I need to learn to be patient with because it's not a perfect world. And people make bad choices. And so while I am sitting there at an intersection that's blocked off because of construction, and I am getting frustrated because why don't they just let us through, that's preparing me for perseverance that really matters. In that case, it doesn't matter. Nobody's choice. Things happen. But it teaches me to be patient. And if I can learn to be patient when there's traffic, then maybe I can learn to be patient with my kids. Maybe I can learn to be patient with people I work with or with others in, in my life. And it is important for me to be patient for them. When I'm in line at the store and there is someone who is the checker in my line and I cannot believe anyone hired this person. The, the way they're, okay, I'm all for helping, you know, those who are challenged, but put them at the door as a greeter. Don't have them, you know, trying to add up products and check them. It's just above your pay scale. You can't do it. But that is who they are. And don't I need to be patient with people like that? Well, that helps teach me patience, but also those people deserve patience because there are some things that people have to wait on me for and wonder if I'm ever going to get it and wonder if I'm, you know, hey, every one of us has areas of our lives where we're stubborn, where we have blind spots, where we have years of bad habits that, you know, pile up. And, and so I need people to be patient with me. I need to be patient with others. And so when I go through trials, it helps teach me that. And that's a good thing. If, if you can think of a person in your life who's really patient, wouldn't you want to be like them? If you can think of someone in your life who's impatient, wouldn't you go, I don't want to be like that? And so Paul's going, I'm even happy in tribulations because I learn patience from tribulation, perseverance. I learn how to not quit. And then when I learn how to not quit, my character is developed. I become a better person. And as I become a better person, I have hope. I can finally look forward to the future. And hope and joy are tied intimately together. You lose your joy when you lose hope. When you stop believing that things are going to get better, then it's all over. And it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. And so he says, here's how joy works. 
And he started out by saying that um, I rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now he goes, now by the way, learning to rejoice in hope sometimes starts with tribulation, which then teaches you to hang in there. It toughens you up, it strengthens you, it stretches your patience, and that actually builds character in your life. And as that happens, presto changeo, you get that hope, and that results in joy. And you'll know how you're doing when you get into something that delays you, which is really all tribulation is. Tribulation just slows you down. How do you handle that? How do you handle detours in your life? And if you can handle them with joy, you're developing character. You're trusting God to bring about His glory through whatever happens. And again, this isn't something to discipline yourself about. This isn't something to beat into someone. This happens when you realize you're free. This happens as you realize that you're taken care of, you're covered. If you're going to be sitting at an extra signal, then you're sitting there with him. You're in his presence. Is it so bad? Sometimes you get home or you get to where you're going and there's something on the radio or a song that you really like, sit there in the driveway listening to it. Um, Imagine if your whole life was that way in a conversation with the Lord that if you got somewhere early, you just wanted to wait and talk to him. And if somebody cut you off, it was like, oh, good, an extra 10 seconds of driving with the Lord sitting next to me. And, and so, you know, that's how Paul is showing this is kind of what happens, and that's the overall picture of how his grace works in our lives. And it all comes through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And notice in this passage references to the Trinity, to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 5 is the first reference to the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And then later on, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit quite a bit. Now, he says, verse 6, For when we were still without strength, before his grace ever really had an effect on us, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the center of the gospel, really. And it's understanding that... and. Again, and what, where he's going in this chapter is, remember how you got in. It wasn't your works. While you were a sinner, he died for you. Now go with that. Live in that. Don't think that you got in the door as a sinner, but now it's up to you to make yourself righteous. No, his righteousness is a gift from God. It's purely from grace. Don't think that he signs you up and then tells you, now get busy and earn it. And that's why he's again emphasizing, remember, in the same way that in chapter 4 we saw Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness before he ever did anything. Now he's reminding us, remember where you were 
when God found you. A lot of times we don't want to think about that. Either think about who we were before we accepted Jesus or think about where we would have been had he not interrupted our lives the way that he did. We don't like to think about that, but it's okay to think about it. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't feel like, oh, I'm really embarrassed about my past life. I think it's too bad when people brag about their past life, and sometimes as people share their testimony, they embellish it because they want to make it like, I was really bad, as if somehow being really bad gives you credibility. And then there are people who go, yeah, I don't really have a testimony because I was just always pretty good. That's <laughs> two things. For one thing, that's awesome if you were really good. But the truth is, if you were really always really good, how'd you ever get saved? <laughs> you weren't as good as you pretend. You know, he knows your heart. He knew that. But at the same time, there's no reason for us to deny the fact that we were nothing when he found us, that there was nothing valuable or good within us. All of that came because he found us. We were completely and totally depraved. We were just without hope, without value, without merit. Apart from him, that's who we were. And don't forget that. And not so that, oh, you'll stop from being prideful and getting on your high horse, but you need that because Whenever you begin to show some of those tendencies, the devil is going to come in and tell you, oh boy, you blew it now, that God doesn't love you now. And that's when we need to go, are you kidding? If you think I'm bad now, you should have seen how bad I was when he sent Jesus to die for me. You should have seen what I was like before. And that's one thing where grading on the curve will help you because Every one of us can look back to a darker time and know he loved me then enough to die for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the reason he's making this point is he wants you to know God hasn't changed the way he feels about you. And there isn't anything that you can do that's going to make him regret the decision that he made to love you and to save you. He chose you when you had no merit, and you couldn't, you didn't deserve it at all, and that love is going to continue for your entire life. You're secure in his love simply because it's a gift. He's not going to take it away. Not only that, much more. <laughs> so he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In other words, he saved you in the past, and any wrath that's there in the future, you're not going to face it. The same thing that got you saved is the same thing that's going to keep you saved. Don't ever believe the lie that there are some people who state it theologically um, you're saved by grace, but you're kept by works. If you're kept by works, you're dead. But the truth is, what he did for you in the past is going to protect you from his wrath in the future. You can take it to the bank. It's not a question. It's not up for discussion. For if, when we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What was good to get you there is good to keep you there. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We rejoice because we know that what he did for us is something that is good enough to take us to the finish line. We've been reconciled to God. There's nothing that stands between us and God. The only thing that can separate, and we're going to see later, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But the only thing that can create a distance is our choice to ignore his grace, is our choice to, to not put our faith in the truth of his word. See, it's really only lies that can keep you from God. And that's really, ever since Jesus died, it's only lies that keeps anyone from God. The only reason anyone will, will face God's wrath and his judgment is because they believed a lie rather than to believe the truth. And if we live in defeat, if in your life you don't have power, if in your life you don't see growth, if in your life you don't see God doing stuff, you never hear from God, it's not going well, you're listening to lies because you are so close to God. He's inside you. If you feel that there's a distance, you know, there was an old bumper sticker that if you feel far from God, guess who moved? He didn't move. If you feel far from God, guess who lied? The father of lies. And guess who believes the lie? You. That's the only reason to feel far from God if you've put faith in Jesus Christ. Now he goes through this and now he sets up a, a picture of comparing how sin came into humanity through Adam and how righteousness can come into humanity through Jesus and compares Adam and Jesus here. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, it's interesting that he said through one man sin entered into the world. Adam makes it really clear here. Because who was the first one to sin? It was Eve. But it was through Adam that sin entered the human race. I have, a, I have some theories that somehow this is tied in with genetics. That there is some sort of mutation that happened by the genetic engineering of eating of the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat that did some damage in males. Let's face it, I mean, women sin, but men are really made it an art form. But, <laughs> but if sin was passed down through the female, I mean, obviously sin has been passed down. The Bible's really clear, and he's going to go into that a little bit. But think about it. If it was passed down from Adam through women, then 
Mary would have had that corruptible genetic thing in her. Now, Mary did have sin, but there's some way in which it was important, this male-female difference, that the man is the one who has the ability to pass sin down to the next generation. Now, you can just go, ah, yeah, whatever, that's what it says, I don't care how it happens, or you can have a lot of fun figuring out how this happens, but the truth is it happened. It's undeniable that every baby who has a father has sin. <laughs> and, and so through Adam, one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Not only do you inherit sin, but you sin in order to prove that you're human, in order to prove that you're a descendant of Adam. For until the law, now a little parenthesis, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And what does that mean? He says, well, when the law was given, it became really obvious that people were violating the law and that they were sinners. But he said, do you ever notice even before Moses, before the law, people were still sinning? There was no law. It became a greater sin once the commandments were there. But the truth is, and as he discussed Earlier in the first two chapters of Romans, people's conscience, they would violate it, their own standards, that which is revealed in nature, they would violate it. And so he said, hey, people didn't need the law to be sinners. Obviously, the law didn't invent sin. The law only called attention to it. But people, even from Adam to Moses, they were still killing each other. They were still demonstrating that they had some, something wrong with them. Something was damaged. And so if you have a problem with saying, oh, you know, we inherit original sin from Adam, don't worry because you've done enough of your own that even if you don't believe in original sin, you're still, you know. So that's what he's saying. <laughs> Death reigned. It's happened. But, oh, and Adam was a type of him who was to come. Why? Because Adam sinned, that corrupted him, and that was passed down from generation to generation, obviously. Each subsequent generation didn't sin the same way Adam did by eating the wrong fruit, but they found all kinds of other ways to sin. But even then, Adam was a type of Jesus Christ because what Jesus would do is be righteous and then be allowed to pass his righteousness on to others. And so he's like a, a type or an anti-type. Sin, the same way that sin is contagious and inherited genetically as well, um, so righteousness has that potential. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the offense. He goes, the gift of salvation and righteousness is different in some ways than the sin, the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, 
Jesus Christ abounded to many. So he goes, when Adam said it messed everyone up. But when Jesus was righteous as a man and took our sins on himself, that was enough to be passed down as well to many. So one gave death, the other gave life. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Through spiritual birth. Now, when we become a Christian, we still bear Adam's corruption. We're still dragging this body of flesh around with us. But we are born of the Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. What happened when we are born again? We inherit from Jesus his righteousness. It's a gift. He gives it to us, and it's then with us always if we believe in him. Now, there are some people who would want to believe in universalism, and they would say, okay, wait. Everybody who was born inherited Adam's sin. So then Jesus came along the second. Adam, how come everybody doesn't inherit his righteousness? He died for the sins of the world. How come anybody is guilty? Well, again, and Paul has been making that clear, it's by faith that that can come. And, and then here, as he says, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So it's through that decision to receive him. It's through that, that faith that we place in him that then his grace just comes and overwhelms us and it's not going to go away. Adam was living thousands of years ago and his sin still has a powerful effect in each of our lives. Jesus died on the cross almost 2,000 years ago. Paul's point is, don't worry. If you were born again, then as a descendant, a spiritual descendant of Jesus Christ, your salvation is taken care of. Your sins are forgiven. It's a gift that can be passed down. It's a gift that can be communicated and offered to others as well. It's just as contagious as the genetic corruption that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, his gift of taking our sins on himself, the free gift came to all men. Notice, he, he offers it to everyone. So the gift is there, it's presented, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. But who are they? Those who receive the abundance of his grace. Those who are the children of faith, those who will believe in him. It's offered to everyone. His life was worth so that everyone could have been saved, but some people choose not to, and he's not going to force that on you. 
Moreover, verse 20, the law entered that the offense might abound. The reason the law was given is so that people would understand their need for grace. Their sin became, the more you know, the more you're responsible for. To whom much has been given, much will be required. And so the law was given so that it would be clear to everyone that they're offensive. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That's such an incredible truth. It's such an incredible phrase. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. You cannot sin so much that there's not enough grace left for you. You cannot put yourself in a place where you are beyond God's grace and forgiveness. You can't be such a despicable character that he goes, sorry, I love most people and I died for a lot and I want to save most, but not somebody like you. Hey, the more you sin before you come to Christ, the more you're aware that you need him and the more you appreciate his grace. And even after we come to him, this is still true. When we mess up, it's a daily reminder of his grace. And he never gets tired of saying, I forgive you. He never gets tired of saying, I love you no matter what. We can always come boldly into his presence because of the depth of his grace because of the depth of his love. As we saw on Sunday morning a couple weeks ago in Paul's prayer in Ephesians, that you would be able to comprehend the breadth and length and depth and height with all the saints to know the love of God that passes knowledge. You will not push him past his limit <laughs> because his grace has no boundaries. There, there was an old... Him that you say is love has no limits, his grace has no boundaries. And and that's true. And Paul's just so consumed with that. Did it cause Paul to then go, oh good, I'll take advantage of it? Of course not. We're gonna see that as we go through. But until you let go of the notion that you can be good, that you can be righteous, you'll never understand the joy of his grace and forgiveness. His response to your sin is his love and his grace so that it abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The rule that matters is the rule of grace and it's going to take you all the way to heaven. It's what brought you to him. It's what keeps you in him. And that's what you'll need until the day you die and you see him face to face. And that's why I, I think sometimes when we think of the gospel as being something for non-Christians, I don't think so. I need it all the time. You know, I'll go listen to Greg Laurie preach the gospel at Harvest Crusade or on Thursday nights. And as somebody who's been a Christian since 1971, I still love hearing the gospel. I still totally love hearing it because that's the only reason I can get up in the morning. That's the only reason that I can know that I'm going to be in heaven. That's the only reason I can face the trials 
that come into my life. That's the only reason for me to be able to rejoice and have hope is because of the gospel. It's, it reigns. It's the rule to live by. It's the, it's the truth that brings us day by day, moment by moment into the very presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for what you've done for us. It seems trivial for us to even mention it because words can't describe the incredible gift of your salvation. And God, we're so sorry when we stick it in a file somewhere and we think it was just in the past. Lord, help us to remember this is as current as this very moment. And it's as consistent and dependable as the rest of eternity. Your incredible grace. May we stand in your grace by faith, in joy and hope, knowing who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.